This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Ken and Vaughn of Downline Ministries hosted a track called Discipling Millennials, Engaging the Next Generation of Church Leadership with the Gospel. Here's the session from Downline Ministries. Well, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Downline. Um, and is this mic? You guys hear me okay? I know there's some, some competing noise, but it'll be okay. Um, I've, uh, we're, we're on our 12th year of, of, uh, of Downline Ministries now, and just to tell you, just a a snippet um, of how it began. Uh, I was actually back in the year 2002. I was in my third year of student ministry. And uh, just to be really honest with you, I was in a season in student ministry where I felt pretty empty and uh, pretty lonely. And I would say uh, in my own walk, if I could use the cliche, that I was just dry. Um, Part of that was because um, I did not... I didn't have any formal training in youth ministry. I loved the Lord, and it's a long story of how that opportunity came about. But, um, but I was in a season where three years into youth ministry, I was thinking that I might need to find a different vocational calling, uh, one that more aligned with my spiritual immaturity, which I recognized. I, I knew I didn't have enough knowledge, thought about going to seminary, uh, but also just, just had a lot of sin issues I was struggling with and, and just thinking that maybe we should leave ministry to uh, the guys that are just more spiritually mature than I was. And uh, so I was thinking about this, and at the time I had a pastor uh, in my home. I was in Kansas City at the time, but I had a pastor in Memphis that uh, invited me to come and serve in uh, youth ministry in the church. And so I was able to have this honest conversation with this pastor about where I was and the struggle and wondering if if, uh, ministry was the right career path for me as much as I loved the Lord, just kind of stumbling along. He appreciated uh, the honesty, the sincerity, uh, encouraged me to stay the course, felt like God had given clear evidence of uh, his calling on my life and in my life. And, and so he did something that uh, was, was a great gift and very insightful. He said, you know, this first responsibility that you were to have, which was to train our juniors and seniors in the Word of God, what we're going to do is, uh, why don't I help with that? Why don't we get some men in the community to help with that? And why don't you kind of take a season and sit back as a learner? And that was um, really helpful. Uh, uh, thinking back to that, I think most pastors just would have said, um, we need a different youth pastor. Uh, but he was, uh, if nothing else, he was incredibly compassionate and uh, empathetic towards me. And so one of the names he gave me was the name Soup Campbell. You may have heard this name. You may have read about Soup. If you've looked at any kind of uh, my bio, you've heard part of this. But I, I uh, always am grateful to tell this story. Uh, Soup is an African-American man from uh, a, a very impoverished area in Memphis. If you're a Memphian, any Memphians here? So we got one. So you know Binghampton. Uh, Binghampton and the Mound are two kind of, kind of. They're known for the just the difficulty. The uh, you know they're they're uh, they've been traditionally, and, and God's changing this redemptively, and a lot of that's through Soup's faithfulness. But they've been the the more, the more dangerous places, the places where education is the worst, crime's the highest, and uh, just the most uh, uh, the most problems, and and, and therefore. Um, uh, they're they're very impoverished, underprivileged, and uh, they're rough neighborhoods. And so uh, Soup's uh, lived there for um, about 22 years now. And uh, at the time in 2002, uh, uh, he came, uh, I invited him to speak. He came and spoke at this church uh, I was uh, a part of in East Memphis. And he walked in and taught out of John chapter 15. And, uh, and honestly, he opened his Bible and uh, he, he walked exegetically. He went verse by verse right through John 15. You guys are familiar with this chapter on abiding in Christ, Christ abiding in us, and the fruit that that will produce. And as he talked, I just kind of had this epiphany going, you know, that's what I lack. I just really don't know how to follow Jesus. I don't have this intimate relationship with Jesus. I've got this kind of shell of, of ministry I'm trying to keep up without the, um, the, the, the meat of intimacy with Christ that it's flowing out of. And I'd never heard anyone teach like soup, just a great humility to this man. But also, boy, he, he really had a great hold on and authority over the Word. And so when, the, when his time teaching was done, I just... Um, I, as any good youth minister would, I was tossing kids out of the way and making a beeline right up to soup. And I got to the front and, and just uh, told him that I was um, kind of struggling, didn't know if I was really supposed to be in ministry. Mentioned that on, on certain days I'm not even sure if I'm saved and, uh, and, and just wanted to know if I could get some time with him. And uh, he told me to relax, take a deep breath, and uh, gave me his information said, call him the next day. So the next day I called soup. He told me to call him uh, at that point in a week. And I thought that's a bad sign, you know. And so I called him in a week and he told me to call him in a month. And if I wasn't convinced before now, I thought, oh, man, it's embarrassing. He's, he's kind of blowing me off. 
And so I didn't expect that I would call him again, but a month passed, and uh, I was just really desperate, and I thought, I'm just going to shamefully call him one more time. And so I did, and uh, I just kind of said my story again. Hey, about a month ago I met you, and I just admit it's a tough place. I don't really know how to follow Jesus, and I'm in youth ministry. It probably answers my own question. probably shouldn't be, but, um, but I, uh, I, I've never heard anyone teach the Word like you. I, I want to know the Lord. I want to know His Word, and just didn't know if you had a Bible study or something I could get in. And at that point, Soup said, hey, do you know where I live? I said, generally, yes. And he said, well, write this address down. I want you to be here at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, oh, what are we doing here? And um, so I woke up middle of the night and, and um, uh, roll into the darkest hood in Memphis. And, um, and I'm, all I know is I'm meeting a guy that for a month has been trying to get rid of me. And so as I'm pulling down the street, down his cove, um, I see him standing in the front yard. It's a, a pitch black dark. And I'm so nervous as I pull up. I just, just got kind of hair on my neck standing up. And I'm thinking, man, they are never going to find my body. Like, I'm not getting out of here. And uh, I was desperate enough to get out of the car. I walk up. Soup does not exchange any pleasantries. He had me sit down on his concrete front porch of what he calls the Taj Mahood. And, um, and I sat down. And, uh, and he said, first thing he said to me is, you know, you and I come from two very different worlds. He said, I, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how talented you are. All I care about is whether or not you can be faithful. And he said, if you can, I'll show you how to be a man of God. And you guys just heard Jim harping on this in the main stage session about what discipleship really is. It's showing, showing, showing. And, and I thought back to that front porch of soup when he gave me that invitation. He said, I will show you how to be a man of God. Now, I didn't know what that entailed, but I did know this. I never had any godly man. I, had a, I didn't tell you all my testimony. My father passed away when I was a junior in high school. Great man, best friend of mine, but not a spiritual man. And I'd never had a godly man invite me into any kind of spiritually nourishing relationship, a discipling relationship. I never had a godly man say to me, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. By the way, I wouldn't have even known that that's what I was missing until he said it. And uh, boy, something just kind of broke open in my heart, and uh, I didn't know how to respond. I was emotional on his porch, and finally I said, I I don't know if I can be faithful. I don't want to make any more promises I can't keep, but I really want whatever it is you're willing to give me. And um, this is in 2002. We began... Every Tuesday morning, I'd meet at Soups at 5 a.m., and, and we'd spend um, several hours. We used to spend a couple hours in the Word, and then we'd eat breakfast, and that time would just kind of linger. And then he did something that was uh, really kind. Every, uh, every week, he'd allow me to initial his calendar. This is kind of before the, uh, the um, Apple technology it took over, but uh, this, was, um, this was an old-school hard calendar that he kept on his wall in what he called the war room, and I would just initial. And at some point during the week, whenever I'd sign, I'd come and I'd just hang out with him for if I had an hour, if I had half a day, whatever I had. And so, as you can imagine, for three years, I got to do a lot of life with soup. Whenever he was taking trips, um, uh, whether it was regionally or even overseas, I'd try to go on trips with him just because it was so fun being around him, so um, uh, really uh, nourishing being around him. And then um, uh, we spent time uh, doing evangelism and uh, in prayer and specifically uh, doing things that were spiritual discipline related, but we also just hung out together. I ate meals with his family, uh, did family uh, trips with them. I just, I mean, he literally had four kids. One of them was out the house, and it was like I had, I had Antonio seat at the table. And uh, he just uh, adopted me in, and I got to, and, it, and it's like we just heard in that main stage. He didn't say, okay, look, I'm discipling you. He just, he just had me follow. It was much like Jesus' invitation uh, to, the, to the disciples, which was the two word, hey, follow me. And uh, I just got to be in Soup's life as he uh, pursued Christ. And I want to tell you what happened over that three years is that my, my spiritual life came alive. That, that, that desert season I had been in, uh, not knowing even how to self-feed and how to follow the Lord, uh, all of a sudden, for the first time, my spiritual trajectory was north. And, uh, and I wasn't connecting all the dots, but I did know that when I looked in the New Testament, uh, it was like the relationship I had with Soup was a lot like these teenage fishermen had with Jesus. And I always thought just how blessed I was to have a guy like Soup in my life. Matter of fact, so much that I started thinking in the context of my friends. I wanted all my friends to get to know Soup. Like none of my friends had a, a spiritual father in their life like him. And I thought about the students in the youth ministry. This was a large church I was working at. Um, we, had, we had several hundred high school students, and I was over high school, and I just thought, man, more than the greatness of our programming on Sunday nights with you know, the pizza and the shootout and a spit bath in Philippians, what we really need is somehow to introduce them to godly men who they can follow as they follow Christ. Like I just began to inherently see in the text Jesus' model that came long before the mandate, and I began to experience the power of that and thought, man, we got to somehow get this to the next generation. Like, we need to somehow create this environment for disciple-making to occur in our church. Well, 
that was more problematic than I thought. I began to recruit men and women uh, all over our church that were like the officers and influencers and just the ones that, you know, you kind of recognizable leaders. And I would use what I thought was a simple question, which wasn't. I I would say, hey, would you mind, we're going to try to set up kind of a a culture of discipleship in the youth ministry. Could you come and be a part of discipling some of these teens, some of these students? And uh, I asked that question so many times. And every time I asked it, whoever I asked it to would always backpedal and would always give me one of two things. What do you mean by that? Like there was, there was no common understanding of what I was talking about when I used a pretty biblical idea on discipleship. And uh, the second thing was when I kind of, well, I kind of mean this. And I described supernatural relationship and allowing them, in, inviting them into your life, modeling what it looks like uh, to, to follow Christ, to share the gospel, to confess sin, to have a prayer life, um, to love your wife and to raise your kids in the training and instruction of the Lord, like just to follow Jesus and, and let them come be a part of that. Then I, I always got folks who were backpedaling. They started going it was like Jim when he said the single leg and they go, wait a minute, are they going to wrestle against me? And then they freak out. They would just kind of go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm, I'm not, I don't have any theological, formal theological training here. I'm just a lay guy. And, uh, and again, and again I, not that I knew any better, but I always thought something seems off by that. You know, something seems off. And uh, I remember telling Soup, I can't get any of the leaders in our church to come be a part of discipling the students. I don't know what to do. And he said, why don't you ask some other pastors in the area, how are they carrying out Ephesians 4? We'll talk about this next session. But how are they really equipping the saints for the work of the ministry? And so I, uh, long story short, I did that. I interviewed 12 pastors in our city in 2002 and just asked that question. And, uh, and 12 pastors, in a, I'm giving you the nutshell version, basically responded, we don't do that well. That uh, the Soup Campbells, uh, we, they're the wild exception in our church, and we realize they ought to be the norm. So you know what? When you get done with your research, would you share it with us? And uh, it was just, hey, that's a weakness in, in our church. That's, that's not something we can you know, speak to. Um, well, three years with Soup, which was a huge blessing. After those interviews, uh, I remember telling Soup, hey, Soup, we've got to do something. There seems to be there's something missing. I'm not smart enough to figure it out. And Soup said, who's we? You know, hey, uh, you know, I'm discipling you, and you need, to, you need to bathe this mug in prayer, was the exact quote in 2002. <laughs> and so um, I spent three years with Soup, had a chance to study under a pastor in um, Texas through that uh, program. I met Howard Hendricks, who became one of my great mentors. He passed a few years ago, but he was a professor at Dallas Seminary for about 50 years, um, one of the most influential voices in my life. And uh, one day I asked him, I said, Prof, I just can't quit thinking about discipleship in the church. And I, and I said, maybe I'm in left field. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe my ecclesiology's off. Maybe I'm just a young fool. But would you correct my thinking if it needs to be corrected? And Prof said, Ken, and what you and I talk about, I'd eat lunches on Fridays with him in seminary. He said, what you and I are talking about, uh, he said, you're not missing it. He said, this is the bullseye of the target of everything wrong with Western evangelicalism. And I think, like, I believe it's the reason why we have this void, um, uh, why we've lost a generation called the millennials, and why we have this seeming disconnect from uh, discipling them in, in and through the local church. And, of course, that's what our track's going to talk about. Uh, what the Lord put on my heart, um, which I fought for a while just out of fear, frankly, and insecurity, was uh, what's become Downline Ministries in 2006. I went back to the 2005, went back to those churches, those 12 pastors, and said, hey, if we did something, uh, it was kind of me wanting to share my experiences with others. If we took lay leaders from different churches that say, we're not <laughs> producing disciple makers. And we know the scripture is clear that that's one of the end goals of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. It's right there. It's the church's privilege and responsibility, and, and, and we're not seeing that happen. I said, what if we had a, a nine-month institute committed uh, to answering the questions that people three years ago that they would always ask me, I don't know what it means to make disciples, and I don't have any training. What if we answered the question, what did Jesus mean when he said make disciples of all nations? We trained in your word, specific practical discipleship training for how to make disciples in your home, in the local church, and in your community. And what if the leaders came from these churches, went through a nine-month intensive together, and then took back and applied as leader influencers in the context of the local church under the shepherding of the local governance of their church, carried these things out? Could we begin to see a change in church culture across our city? So that was 2006. By God's grace, we're in our 12th year. We've had a chance to train over 2,000 uh, leaders, lay leaders and pastors across uh, our city. About 50 different churches utilize the Downline Institute uh, to train. Um, so the, the heartbeat of Downline, just hear me say this one time and turn it over to Dan, is to see a restoration or a strengthening um, of biblical discipleship in and through the local church. Y'all with me? We, we might be unique from some of the uh, uh, ministries here that are really uh, excellent discipleship training ministries but aren't tethered directly back into the local church. Downline really has no end zone apart from seeing a strengthening of the local church. We think the Lord's agenda for disciple-making is the local church, that we have an individual responsibility within that corporate responsibility, 
But um, our end zone is staying a stronger, healthier, uh, gospel-driven, disciple-making church. And um, so with that as the backdrop, uh, Danny, who will share a little bit about our relationship, and uh, again, who's our executive director of Downline Little Rock, he's going to come up and, um, and uh, really share with us some of the fruit of his re- research from his Ph.D., uh, on what exactly is a millennial, what are we talking about here, where's the disconnect, what's the problem so that we can begin to work toward Can you hear me out there? Okay, one thing I've learned, I've been with Kenan for over 15 years now, is you don't want to go after Kenan. So I've got a bad slot right there. Um, Kenan can get up here and sell anything, say anything, we're like, we're behind you a thousand percent, let's go man. Um, here's what we're going to do, um, everybody stand up really quick, and uh, Actually, Shad, if you wouldn't mind, there's a there's a light switch right over there. We're gonna hit number two, so you guys can see these slides a little bit better. I want you to sit down if you work with children at all, children's ministry, volunteer or full time, just any kind of children's ministry. Sit down. Anybody, uh, youth ministry, teenagers, any form or fashion. So paid, unpaid, trip leader, tech booth, whatever. All right. Uh, how about um, college ministry? You have any? Okay. And then how about um, what we would probably call in our churches young adults, young adult ministry. Go ahead and sit down. Okay, so that's most of us. If you look around really quick, most of us are thinking about, and not that the other ones aren't, thinking about next generation. Okay, everybody can sit down. Thank you so much. Oh, no, that's not what I want. It's the, it's the second from the top. That's it. Okay. Thanks, Chef. <laughs> I did not want the blackout. Uh, here's what we're going to do. As we talked as a team about kind of how we wanted to tackle this, this project of talking about millennials, one of the things we talked about was there's going to be this kind of uh, nuts and bolts kind of functional session, and we all sort of avoided it a bit, thinking like no one really wants to do this session, including myself. But we thought before we actually go on to how do we disciple millennials, and truth be told, the team that's with us, uh, they're proven real-life, life-on-life disciplers of millennials. That, that's what I'm most excited about being part of this track is just listening to them tell stories, maybe not even from the corporate sense of, like, uh, we engage, you know, these masses of millennials, and they're all being attracted into this model, but instead, real-life people who are engaging real-life millennials, and it's working. Life change is happening. So somebody had to take the bullet on this one and do this first session, which is really, what are we talking about anyway? When we say millennials, what are we talking about? So we've called this first one Hollow to Hallowood. And it's this idea that, that if, you're, if you're taking notes, the idea we had with this title was when we look at millennials, we look at young adulthood in general, one kind of general picture you'll see is sort of the idea of um, young people having this outer shell of spirituality but an empty inside. So this idea of like... They're interested in God, they're interested in spiritual things, but when you just crack inside, it's, it's hollow. And so what we're trying to do, all of us are on the same page here, I would imagine, we're trying to take that hollow shell, we're trying to fill it, and we're trying to, 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 by the grace of God, bring about somebody who's pursuing holiness. It's a complete shift, right? It's an empty shell moving toward this yielded to the Holy Spirit, follower of Jesus, who is becoming holy, it's a complete shift. So when we look at this, when we look at ministry to millennials, hollow or hallowed. Now, my goal is over these next probably 40 minutes or so, probably to make your brain hurt a bit. And I, I really do hate that. I, I drew the short straw. But here's the idea. We're going to just talk about millennials, 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 young adults, what they think like, what they're, what, the best we possibly can. Let's just get all of our minds around what we're dealing with. All right. Um, so let's just jump right in. We're going to take this in three parts. First, we're going to talk about sort of the confusion of talking about millennials. That's an important topic. The second part, we're going to look at exactly what do we know about millennials best we can. And then the third part is I'm going to share with you a bit of my research that I've done over the last four years with 18 to 29-year-olds, which I think, and I think asking a really important question, uh, and that was since statistically most millennials have walked away from the church, there's this few that are still here. And that's great. We praise God for that. We want to ask the question, why are you still here? That's a really important question, right? Because that gives us a bit of a blueprint or a pattern. How, did, how are you strong enough to stand out there and you're still here? There's another question, though, and that is, of the ones who are remaining, who are making disciples? And as it turns out, not very many are. And so we have to ask the question, so it would be very rare to think of a millennial who survived that, survived all the, the world, they were strengthened enough to stand, they're still here. It would be even crazier to think that an 18 to 29 or, an eight or a 21 to 37-year-old 
is making disciples. So I wanted to zero in on that age group and ask them, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) How did you get here? So we can look backwards and kind of see. So we'll share some of that at the end. So I'll share a few points as we go. Uh, Here's the first one I want to share. These are kind of just backdrop premises. The first one is generational labeling is largely unhelpful in biblical discipleship. That's a bit of a weird one to come out of the gate with. But here's the idea. As we talked as a team, one one of the hard things about this is is we're supposed to be talking about how to disciple millennials in in a general sense. So, So let me ask you, raise your hand again if you work with children's ministry at all, in children's ministry. So in my church, excuse me. I work with the fourth grade boys, all right? It's, it's crazy, right? But someone, if someone asked me to step up and talk about how to disciple fourth grade boys, it would be really hard to give one answer, right? Because I don't know about you, in my class, we have about four guys who are clearly lost as a goose. We have two guys in there who are kind of seekers. They're really interested in faith, but they get swayed by the other guys, We've got two guys who were baptized within the last two years, and they're kind of going through this basic discipleship group. So how do we disciple fourth graders? <laughs> Good question, right? And it's the same thing we have here. And so here's the idea. In a general sense, we know, especially within the model that we've seen in Scripture, that biblical discipleship is always customized. So to say that this is how we disciple millennials is almost foolish. Do you guys see that? We need to recognize that as a backdrop on the very front end. That in some ways, you almost think of that's the way we think uh, maybe like with the public school system. You know, it's sort of like every 12th grader, if they go through this, 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 it'll produce that. Of course, that's not true, right? We also sadly sort of do it in the church too, right? Every 4th grader is going to go through this, 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 and it's going to produce that. It's, it's actually quite foolish. And what we see in Scripture is that we ha- what we have to do as disciple makers is actually do the hard work of actually getting to know each individual person. So here's the question that we'll ask is, will it do you much good to have all these statistical understanding of who a millennial is when a millennial walks in your door? Does it, does it really give you an advantage? You know, in a sense, it's, it's good to have a general idea of the life stage and generally speaking, millennials are like this. But what are you going to have to do one way or the other? Meet them there. Get to know them. You have to find out their family history. You're not going to say, oh, you probably are one of these millennials. You probably are this. You probably are this. One way or another, you're going to have to get to know them. So this generational labeling sort of idea actually is not really compatible with biblical discipleship. So what we're doing here is we're going to try to, in this first session, kind of give an overview of that whole generation and constantly be reminding ourselves that we can't paint with that stroke. We're going to have to meet people where they are. Number two. Millennials have gotten especially a bad rap. Did you know that? Man, we trash millennials, don't we? The, you know, have anybody seen the John Christ video that's out there? Oh, it's so good. It's, it's a sponsor a millennial. Maybe we'll show that during our track. Um, this is this idea that millennials don't want to grow up and get a job, and so we, we support them monthly. You know, it's like a charitable thing. It's, it's hilarious. But for whatever reason, even more so than other generations, millennials get a bad rap. Okay, we, we tend to kind of blanket them all together, and it's typically negative, isn't it? So that's another purpose of this, of this uh, first session is to really get into what are millennials thinking, what are, what are millennials doing, and how are they expressing themselves. Number three, many are unsure what it even means when we say millennial. So we said it so often, it's become such a catchphrase that we actually usually think of all those youngsters, you know, like, we've got to reach those millennials. What we're really saying is, like, we've got to reach a, a bunch of youngsters. Um, in reality, here's what a millennial is. And, of course, different social scientists kind of categorize these a different way, maybe a year or two one way or a year or two the other. But, but actually, <coughs> this group is, is 21 to 38 right now. Did you know that? It's kind of funny. We've always thought young people, young people, young people, young people, but that, but that, that generation is growing up. We talk about millennials, this is what we're talking about. So, again, back to the original premise. If we were to say, we take a 21-year-old and a 24-year-old and a 30-year-old and a 32-year-old and a 36-year-old and say, you guys are all millennials and this is how we disciple you. You see this? Clearly, that's not going to work. But it is probably going to help us to understand a bit about how they got to where they are in a general sense. How that generation thinks, the things that they do, at least in a general sense, to maybe give us a head start. And it gives an understanding of this. So, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about 21 to 
to 38-year-olds right now. A lot of this research that's been done on millennials was actually done when they were younger. The generation has not always been 21 to 38. They were, they've been studied when they were teenagers and when they were kids, and now they're grown up. All right, let's keep going. Number two, I told you we're going to fly, so let's kind of do a flyover. We could talk for two or three sessions on statistics, and of course, when you're dealing with social science, different studies are going to say it a different way. They're going to see it a different way. So I've just compiled about eight or ten studies, some religious-based, some secular-based, and try to just give us an overview, okay? Let's go make your brain hurt. So millennials, millennials, young adults, how do they think? What are they doing? Here we go. Let's talk about just millennials in the U.S., okay? It is true that they're more likely than the last generation to live at home. So they, they tend to come back home more often. But let me just give you a quick example. This is the, for, I lead out with this one for this reason. This is one of the stereotypes, isn't it? That millennials don't want to grow up. Well, did you know that only 15% of those who are 25 to 35 still live at home? 15%. So here's what we do. That's higher than previous generations. And so what do we do? The millennials are far more likely to not grow up and leave the home. And so the millennial generation is now, they're kind of categorized, they're characterized by that. But only 15% of those 25 to 35, so that's the older part of the millennial generation, are still living at home. And so, again, we have to check ourselves and make sure we're meeting one of these millennials. They probably didn't grow up and leave the house or something. Well, in reality, the vast majority did. So we've got to be sure we kind of know what we're talking about here. All right, what about this next one? They're more polarized politically. And, and here's, here's sort of the idea. is like when you look back at these previous generations, the middle group where, where like the conservatives would lean middle and the liberals would lean middle, that group was larger in the past. That, the middle group is getting smaller, which means the outside groups are becoming more and more polarized. How about this one? It is the largest generation. If you were to take these and, and list them out, Generation X, the boomers, the lower generation, Generation Z. So this is the reality. For a long time we thought, uh, how are we going to reach millennials, this subset of the church? Well, here's the deal. Church is millennials. The world is millennials. They've taken over as the largest generation. So we're talking about reaching the world, reaching our country. This is a large group. All right? Next, we know this. this again, these are things you're going to aim in. You've read these articles, right? Um, this is, faith is significantly less important to millennials. How many of you have read something like that? All right? So previous generations had a tendency toward faith. This generation is, is less that way. And then there's a far larger percent, as a result of this, a far larger percent of this population would be called nuns or unaffiliated. Uh, no religious affiliation if they're asked. Does that make sense? Okay, so what does that mean? Here, when you put all this together, many of you have heard this statistic, that roughly three out of four Christian kids who grow up in the church will be inactive in their faith by the end of their freshman year of college. How many of you have heard that, that stat before? Sometimes it's, it's used as a bit of a scare tactic, but you really have to kind of understand the stats behind it. So let's just, let me just give a quick overview. Four years, I was diving into these things and kind of trying to understand what all that meant. Um, so let me just let me explain a couple things that we need to nuance about that. Because when we say that three out of four Christian kids are no longer active in the church, who are we talking about? Millennials. Those studies were done when they were largely teenagers. So when we're talking about that, we're talking about Millennials. Well, here's what we need to know. 75, Ed Stetzer says that the best way to break down America, if you were to draw a circle, would be it breaks down four ways. 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%. I don't know if you've seen this chart before. But in the top left quadrant, you'd say these are Easter Christmas Christians. Like We have a name for those, don't we? I forget what it is. Is it ENC or something? I forget what it is. Easter and Christmas only. CEO. Is that what it is? CEO, Christ, Christ, Christmas and Easter only. So that's in the top left quadrant, 25% of Americans, Christmas and Easter only. Their top right quadrant would be like one out of four or two out of four church attendance. We would call those casual Christians, right? I'll be at church, I'll be engaged in my faith, so long as something else is not going on. Then you go to the bottom right quadrant, and what you're going to find there is convictional Christians. These are Christians who, they read the Bible, they intend to follow it. Uh, if there's pressure or persecution, they tend to not leave. They tend to not sway. They're convictional Christians. Well, what's that last one on the bottom left? 
unaffiliated, right? Not, not religious or another religion. This actually kind of breaks down quite nicely. So just hang with me for a second. How many of the 100%, if you asked them, would say, I'm a Christian? 75%. Right? So Easter, Christmas, people, you knock on their door. What's your religious affiliation? Christian. Right? One out of four, two out of four, Christian, Christian. So that stack can be a bit misleading, isn't it? Because we're saying three out of four of our Christian kids, when they go off to college, they're engaged in their faith. And we would back up as disciple makers and we would go, well, actually, I'm not too surprised by that. Why, do we say, why would we not be surprised by that? Because what we're finding in the data is kids look at their parents' faith and they sniff it out if it's inauthentic. And so especially this millennial generation looked at their parents and go, wait, you're super involved in your faith twice a year? This doesn't make sense. You know what they do? They go one tick backwards. They want to be unaffiliated. <coughs> one, out of two, one out of four and two out of four. If you grew up in that home, they're looking at the parents, they're sort of going like, your faith is only important so long as there's not a soccer tournament? Okay, that, that doesn't quite make sense. You know what they tend to do social science-wise? They go back a tick. They're Easter Christmas. Can I give you an encouraging note? You know what happens to those who grow up in the convictional home? Nothing. Generally speaking, when you grow up with authentic Christian parents who love Christ, authentically follow, make mistakes, confess their sins in the word, rooting, those kids aren't the ones who are leaving the faith. So what does all this mean? Why is there a larger percent of nuns? Well, here's what's happening. Those kids who grew up in what I would say a hollow home have walked away. And we would say, we would step back from that, we would say something like, I'm not totally surprised by that because there was never a grounding to begin with. Can we honestly say that we're surprised when they get into philosophy 101 and, those, and the professor says, is there really such thing as truth anyway? And our kids who call themselves Christians go, great point. And they're gone. We're not, we, we're not totally surprised by that because it was hollow to begin with. Their upbringing was superficial to begin with. It was casual to begin with. So who are we dealing with now? Those kids have grown up. Here's the other way to nuance it. The first way to understand is those Christian kids were Christian kids in Christian homes. You see that? That's the first way to just understand that stat. Here's the second thing we need to say. Great news. When they grow up in and around church, they actually tend to want to come back. Have you seen this? Have you seen this in the research? So actually, most experts say between 30 and 40% of those who left will be drawn back at some point by something. A lot of times it's to be married or when they have kids. Isn't that fascinating? So a lot of times we, we say these to, things to parents. We say, don't just force your kids to go to church mechanically you know, because there's no heart behind it. Well, it turns out it's like, no, go ahead and do it mechanically. <laughs> because what you're doing is you're like you're really building some habits there and some patterns and some some uh, experiences and things like that that actually when they come to be older they have a they have a kid and they go it feels like we should be in church or they they're about to get married and someone says where do you want to get married well I want to get married at the church I'm like why you're unaffiliated you're, you've rejected faith altogether I don't know I just feel like we should be at the church so that's the other way to understand is that they're coming back so now now think now think about the millennials for a second. Bunch of young people, hollow in their faith, walk away, some stay away. They're the nuns, disconnected from church, not interested in church. Some of them would come back. What's their faith like? Still hollow. And that's what we're dealing with, right? And so some of them are in our church, some of them are outside of our church, some of them are willing to come to church, some of them are not willing to come to church, some are really hostile to the church. And we have the millennials. That's, that's in the best general way to understand this kind of, uh, this huge generation that we have out there. So should we talk about the church for a second? We'll talk about a couple more things with the U.S., then we'll go to the church. <coughs> Barna says that even though you would ask millennials out there what objective truth is, and do they believe in objective truth, even though they wouldn't all, or half of them, wouldn't just come out and say, I'm a moral relativist, they would espouse something that is so incoherent that it might as well be moral relativism. And so, in essence, we have half of that generation who really has ascribed to that. That there's no real truth anyway. What's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me. That's important for us to know. The residue of that is on the millennial generation. It's a, it's a residue. They're confused. You ask them if they believe in God, most of them are going to say yes. 
They do. They think they can have a spiritual side. They think they can have a God side to them in a general sense without participating in the institutional church. That's the typical uh, thing for millennials. Um, Many of them actually believe in Jesus and the resurrection, believe it or not. Maybe because of their upbringing and things like that. And yet, so they believe in Jesus as deity, died on the cross for our sins, and yet how they live their life, they never consult mentors from the church, they never come to church, they never consult the Bible. Isn't that interesting? Any of you who have worked with millennials have felt this before. It is a bit of a confusing group. Quite kind of fickle and hard to figure out sometimes. They're actually self-contradicting. This is, a, this is one of the hard parts as well, those of you who have done ministry with uh, millennials. Uh, they actually say in the reporting of these surveys that they, what their deep longing is is to be part of something bigger than themselves. That they want to be involved in something. They want to make a difference in the world. And yet when they score out on sort of um, what they really do in life and seek after in life, it's individualistic and it's very consumeristic. It's very me-centered. So it's, it's kind of hard to understand even. This is why it's so tough. Even when you read these scholars on what they're saying about millennials, it's like we studied a thousand millennials and they said what we really would love from church is deep connection to community or something. And we go, got it. <laughs> Let's figure this out. Let's get community going, whatever. And they come in and they go, they go, yeah, there's a lot of cool people here and everything, but like I really wish we had good, better programming you know, or something. It's like that's not what you said. <laughs> Self-reporting is hard in that, in the social science. So they're consumeristic and individualistic. It is, uh, it should be noted that that generation, especially the younger generation, um, the, the percentage of them involved in illicit drugs or alcohol is huge. That's not to mention um, the increase of uh, opioids and different things that have entered in and behavioral modification type medicines that are abused and um, there's a lot out there that needs to be said about this. We don't have time for it. But, but the fact is that if you, if you were to blanket or sort of take a stab at that generation, good chance they're involved in that or have been involved in that in a dangerous way. It's quite staggering. I, I think it's fascinating, some of this research um, that's out there. Let's talk about the church briefly. If there's a millennial in your church, statistics would say more than likely they were raised around church. Okay, more than likely. Doesn't mean they were raised in church all the time, but they were raised around church, more than likely. So they have some sort of paradigm for this. I've told you 30 to 40% of those who have left uh, have returned. So a lot of millennials in the church are that. Um, one, of the, one of the dangers we fall into is they, they will, they've kind of left the faith. Now they've drifted back. We sort of assume they've always been there. We don't address some of the, the areas of uh, weakness. And Ken will talk about this in the next session. But the idea that we sort of assume that they have a theological understanding. And, and truth be told, if they grew up in a church in sort of a weak, casual environment, they walk away for a number of years, they come back. Their faith, as far as we can tell, is Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's den. The same stories from Sunday school never took root in the heart, never understood, never connected head and heart. So in a lot of ways, they're like fertile ground if they're here. But we've got to develop them. Got to develop them from the ground up. This is no surprise. We could all amen this, right? It has become harder to reach millennials. <laughs> okay, they're not interested. Uh, uh, Ed Stetzer's study shows that there's only 17% of millennials say they're even open to coming to church. 17% of millennials say they're open to coming to church. Okay, what about the other ones? We have to engage them. All right. Um, of the ones, this is an interesting fact, I think. Of the ones who say, if invited, I'll come. Here's what they want. Relationships and inspirational topics. That's what they're saying. That's self-reporting. You know, so we have to take that, take that what it is, right? So relationships and inspirational topics are what's important to them. Generally speaking, millennials are moving away from uh, the interest in the megachurch. Uh, they, they have less interest in sort of institutions and bureaucracy. They, they, millennials who are in the church tend to drift towards smaller churches who have a little bit closer community, and especially those who are for the city. We've seen that, that trend as well. Uh, that it's a community of authenticity where I'm known and we impact those around us. We know this as well. They're more interested in spiritual development, evangelism, social justice, than buildings and programs. And this is what's interesting. This is what I love about the church. The church is supposed to be intergenerational. And so the reality is, 
we're going to have 60-year-old Bob on a committee with 32-year-old Sam, and they have really kind of conflicting values, same heart, same love for Christ, and we get to work that out. Bob's from the generation where you build the building and it'll attract people and it'll come. And, and Sam says, why are we building that building? Because we could use that money to reach lost people and so-and-so. And that's the joy and beauty of the church right there. And let me just say this. There are millennials. Millennials get a bad rap. There are millennials in the church who are really doing well. And actually, if you're a millennial in the church and you're serious about your faith... They have actually represented like a, a return to a love of theology and depth. Uh, they don't want the wishy-washy. They don't want the seeker-friendly. They want to go deep. Uh, and so that's been refreshing. Let the, let the millennials uh, bring that refreshing piece to the church as well. All right, your head hurt yet? We're getting our mind around this. I promise you I'm going to hand it to these guys and, and Ari as well who's with us. Um, and they're going to get some meat on the bones. We're going to get practical. Just, just hang with me, okay? This is getting our mind around what we're talking about. So what's really unique anyway? That's the question, right? So do we even need to say this is what we need to know about millennials? What's really unique anyway? So let me, uh, let me get a, a, a volunteer really quick. You don't have to shout because of the size of our room. Um, how many of you are discipling three, let's say three uh, or more Millennials, right now. Okay, um, I'm going to pick on you right there in the middle. Sorry to be picking on you. Um, would you mind just standing up really quick and just kind of as loud as you can? Yep, yep, right there. And give us um, the age uh, and maybe like a couple little descriptors about the three or just give us three of those you're pouring into uh, their life stage and their career, perhaps. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. That's what I wanted. Who else? Anybody want to just, just stand up? If you've got three, maybe, examples, anybody? No one wants to do it anymore because you have to stand up. I understand. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, that'd be good. Just, just describe briefly these guys. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so I think you can see this. Um, here's the idea. So now, are these two guys, now that they've been through this first session seminar where they understand millennials, you know, in and out, um, now they can just disciple everybody, right? You see the point? What's really unique anyway? It is important to know that, that the, probably the way they view electronics you know, and digital media is probably similar. That, that's important to know those kinds of things. But what's unique really? Um, not much. You know, so I just want to put that out there. Um, the idea is each of these two guys is going to have to do the hard work of actually getting to know a real millennial. <laughs> They're real struggles. Um, they're gonna, some of them are going to have some, some of these things are going to be true about them and some of them are not. It would be unfair for us to blanket that. So what's really unique anyway? I'll give you my example right now. It just kind of popped into my mind as I was preparing for this. Uh, I'm discipling a a 25-year-old single African-American guy who just started in parachurch ministry. Works for FCA. Um, And for whatever reason, I've been in in ministry longer than him. He just thinks, can I show you a thing or two? Can you show me a thing or two? He just, in the middle of our (coughs) discipling relationship where he was uh, really engaged and really uh, available, really wanted to spend a lot of time and uh, in the middle of this, he gets a call from inner city Minnesota where his sister is still in the hood that he grew up in, and he decides he can no longer tolerate his sister being in that environment, so he went up and got her and adopted her. And so now the discipling relationship is kind of, kind of different. <laughs> I went from discipling this young African-American 25-year-old to discipling a young dad, a young single dad, basically. He basically adopted, uh, adopted a 13-year-old. Right? So... We've got to know these people, right? There's, there's another guy I've been working with for three years. Some of you know if you're in relationship with Muslims, the average time it takes to, for a conversion to happen is seven years. I've been in a relationship with this family for three years. Uh, and i got to tell you guys, they're coming around. It is so exciting. It is so exciting to watch that, watch it come on. You know what he's saying? Sidebar really quick. You know what he's saying? He's saying to himself, I've never had the assurance of salvation Along with a, I've never seen an assurance of salvation and a pursuit of holiness like I see in your family. That's humbling. Here's what he means. I thought all you Christians were liberal and go crazy. 
right out there. That's why us over here in the Middle East, they look over there and say, they're all Christians and they're all going crazy. Here's what he sees. He sees the assurance of salvation that we have, and yet a family who wants to honor God and pursue holiness. And he goes, I want that. See, you can, be a, you, can, you can have the assurance of salvation by grace and be devout. It's appealing. So I got this family. They have three girls. He's 32 years old, and he's a Ph.D. student in electrical engineering. We met because he was selling us a van on Craigslist. <laughs> like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> and the third guy is this guy, Hunter, I've been discipling for a number of years. He's, he's single. He's 24. He's in an entry-level position, and here's what he's telling me all the time. He goes, he goes, it's weird because my friends aren't just there anymore like they used to be in college. It's hard for me to make friends. And the pool of girls is so small now. That's what he keeps telling me. Or in college, there's all these girls around to pick from. He's going, am I ever going to get married? Because it's hard to find time. And that's what we're dealing with there. So do you see this? Whoa, when we're, we're talking about millennials. All three of us are talking about millennials. But what are we talking about? We're talking about human souls. And in some ways, we have to back out from this and sort of say, human souls need the same things. You know what I'm saying? Someone to take an interest in their life. Someone to be willing to share truth in life. We'll talk about that in a bit. So what's really unique Anyway, let's keep asking ourselves that question. Okay, now I'm going to get to geek out here at the end and give you some of my uh, research from this project. So if you just need to take a little snoozer or something, that's totally fine. I won't be offended. I've learned over the course of this PhD study that you get this little sliver of the conversation that you get to speak into. It turns out not many people care about that sliver. Okay, I understand that. But I think this is really relevant to what we're talking about. So here's the idea. We took 400 young adults that were 18 to 29. So this is exactly who we're talking about. But here's what I wanted to find. I needed to find uh, above average performing or sort of disciple-making young adults. So would anybody have a clue where to find those? You know what I'm saying? Like disciple-making young adults. Where would you find It's like, shoot. They're all gone, for one, and the few that are here are not typically involved in this. So where are we going to find them? So here's what we did. We researched a bunch of programs that, that really target young adults, um, ages 18, usually to 24, but we did it all the way to 29, because a lot of churches do young adult programming all the way up in, through their 20s. So here are the programs that we, that we use. Downline, a group called Fellows Initiative. These are awesome. Uh, Crew, Campus Crusade has a, an internship, so we took those 22-year-olds who are about to enter the internship. C.S. Lewis Institute, Antioch, Kaleo is with Stumo, uh, Defocus is with Young Life, Lagos Institute is MacArthur uh, out there on the West Coast. They have an in-church uh, young adult uh, kind of training program. Uh, Fellowship Core is a church-based as well. The Forge is uh, Pine Cove, I believe, the Pine Cove camp. Uh, Austin Stone down in Austin. And there are a couple others that have smaller uh, reports that all got put in together. So here, but here is the idea. I was about to ask these folks... Why are you interested in disciple-making? And I really want to know if their home had to do anything with it and if their youth ministry had to do anything with it. Problem is, if I catch these students after they've gone through these, what are they going to say influence them to make disciples? The program. So I had a really hard task, right? Because these programs are doing a fantastic job. I know we do this with Downline with our Emerging Leaders program. They would come through the program, they'd be making disciples, and I'd ask, what's been most influential in your life in making disciples? And they'd go, downline. I'd go, shoot. I didn't find out what I wanted to find out. So here's what I did. I found out which of the students are about to apply for the program, are about to get into the program. And I, tried to, I had like a two-week window to survey them. Because I'm thinking to myself, who of these millennials is actually signing up for a program like this? You guys are crazy. All the millennials are leaving. Some of them are staying. No one cares about this, but you're enrolling for an intensive one-year discipleship program? That's got to be above average. Take that group. And I asked them, Why, how are you making disciples? Something to do with your home? Something to do with church, youth group, something? That was the setup. You guys following me? That's the setup for the, for the project. So here are the questions, okay? How active were your parents in discipling you? How active are you in youth ministry? And I want to know if those things correlate to this. How active you are in making disciples. You guys following me so far? I'm bored you so far? Okay. So we had a survey for this um, that, that kind of marks out. So they would ask questions like, how often would you pray as a family? How often would you do scripture memory as a family? How often did you attend church as a family? We kind of categorize that as how active were your parents in discipling you? Okay. And then we had, how often did you come to a student leadership meeting? If there was a retreat four times a year, how many of those did you go on? 
You know, how often did you attend youth group? Were you in a small group? That, and that gave us a score for uh, how involved they were in youth ministry. Then we asked them a whole bunch of questions about the Great Commission. Basically asking this, how often do you share your faith and how often do you pour into younger believers? That's the core of the Great Commission, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So we're really zeroing in on that, participating in the Great Commission. Here's what we found. Looking at these, these two correlations, is there a correlation there? Here were their scores. <laughs> Excuse me. On the low side on, on, of disciple making, we come up with what we call a Z-score, okay, where we compile all the numbers together and, and put them in a statistical formula. And the low side was a negative 22, and the high side was a positive 14. You're like, now I'm bored. All right, we're going there, okay? That, so that was how, it, how everybody kind of scored out in this. And again, these are probably above average uh, young adult disciple makers. Then we did a control group. And we, we took a group of 18 to 29-year-olds who are in the church who aren't enrolled for one of these. Because we, we wanted to ask ourselves the question, are we right that when we think they're about to enroll for a program like this, they're probably a little more interested than the average? Right? So we did a control group. The control group scored negative 3, so almost negative 4. Okay? This, this is average 18 to 29-year-olds in making disciples. That wouldn't surprise us. right? Then we asked the group. Their, their score, a little better, 0.4. Okay, and actually, that's, it, when you look at the scale, that's actually significantly better, all right? but, but probably not a home run. right? So that's where we are. So th- that's asking those questions. And here's, here's kind of the kicker of this whole thing. I'm thinking to myself as a researcher, I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is where I prove once and for all, the most influential people in a, a child's life are their parents. Right? It's, going to be, it's going to be proven. Those who had great parents, they're the ones making disciples. Boom, write your conclusion, get the degree. Or, we might say, those who are super plugged into youth group as leaders, always there, that's the kind of thing that caused disciple making. Here's what we found. It was quite jarring. Neither one. And you're like, that's just not biblical. <laughs> so let me, let's, let's unpack this a bit. When I first saw this, I thought like, I'm going to have to start over. Like, I did something wrong. <laughs> this, this can't be, you know, like, what, what's going on? Well, here's what I realized. I was asking a really specific question. I was asking, do these things correlate to someone making disciples? I was not asking, do these things correlate to someone staying in the faith? Actually, those studies have already been written. You've probably read some of them. Here's the idea. How, how, um, how uh, active your parents are and making disciples has a huge correlation to whether you'll stay in the faith. Absolutely, it's been proven uh, from a social science standpoint. In fact, parents are the primary influencers of their children. It's already been proven. But I was asking a different question. I wasn't asking if they're still in the faith. I was asking if they're making disciples now. You see that? Same thing goes. One of the key factors in a child growing up and staying in the faith, it's been proven from a social science standpoint, is a significant adult relationship outside the home. In other words, a connection to a small group leader, a connection to a youth pastor. So we know those questions have already been answered. The home as the primary influence, partnered with the local church, that's the holy grail for students to stay in the church. But here's what we're finding. Why is that our bar? Why has that become our bar? That our students would just go out there and survive it. You know, that we send our kids off to college, we cross our fingers and we go just like, Lord, just help them to get blown over by the ways. And we've actually lost the end game. The end game of discipleship is follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We've actually dialed back the end game of spiritual maturity to say that you'll just survive it. And we haven't said, no, the end game is that you're making disciples. That's why it's so critical that we always say that we're building, reproducing followers of Christ. So you might ask yourself, why is that in your church's mission statement? I've asked my church that all the time. Do you really care if I just take that out? Because then it would just be, be and build disciples of Jesus. No, R says, be and build reproducing why is that so important to us? Because we know the end result of a spiritually mature disciple is that they begin to pour out. So I was asking a completely different question. So here's what we found out. I went back and I, I sort of looked. And here's the only thing I could do at this point in the study is to start um, identifying the different, um, the different variables here. And so here's what I did. 
I asked the question, open-ended now, to these folks, if you had a great home life and not a good youth ministry experience, and now you're making disciples, I want you to just tell me, what was it? What was influential? Here's what they said. They mentioned their parents. Are you surprised? If they were super high disciple makers, they had a great in-home experience and not a good youth ministry experience, we said, how are you making disciples? You know what they said? My parents. They said it. Open-ended. They said, my parents. Then we asked, what did they do? What were your parents doing? They said, my parents taught me to make disciples. Amazing stories. Um, goosebump stories that I was reading of these, of these uh, young adults. They're like, we're going, oh my gosh, you share your faith so often, you're pouring into these younger girls. What in the heck happened? How are you doing this? And she said, when I was 16, my mom said, why do you never invite your non-believer friends over? I'm going, man, goosebumps. And then saying, dad, we never get in dad's truck without dad having a pack of water in the back so we could give it out to people who are hurting on a moment's notice. So here's what they told us back. Open-ended. How do parents influence their kids? They modeled it. They, they, they were disciple-making parents. They were a disciple-making family. Then we isolated the other one. We said, we know lots of these, don't we? Really bad home life. Youth ministry rescued them. And now they're making disciples. And we're sort of saying, okay, there's no correlation there, but apparently something was working in your situation, so tell us. You know what it was? They mentioned youth pastors, they mentioned their youth leaders, then we asked, what are they doing? And they said, they taught me how to do it. And I love this last one. This was the most frequent thing they said. They said this, they invited me to participate. Should we be surprised as we raise our kids that they're not participating in disciple making when they never participated in disciple making with us while they were there? This is what they're telling us. They put me in the game. And they're telling us now as 22 and 24 and 26-year-olds, why in the world are you making disciples? They're saying, because a youth leader and youth pastor, they put me in the game and they taught me how to do it. It's fascinating stuff. There's one other variable here, right? You know what it is? This one. We know lots of these too, don't we? Weren't plugged in church, didn't have great parents. So we asked them the same thing. What in the world are you doing here? How are you making disciples? What would be your guess? You all have your own guess. You're afraid to say it. Friends. Campus ministry and friends. So you know how it turns out? Statistically speaking, we've been really kind of failing here. Parents discipling their kids from a social science standpoint. We see it. We know we need to get better in this. Even from a youth ministry, children's ministry, we don't have the right strategies. It's entertainment sometimes. We're kind of failing in this area. You know what God says? I'm going to bring about a disciple-making generation one way or the other. And God has used campus ministry and friends to bring about these millennial disciple-makers who are killing it. It's amazing. And they, We asked them, what were you doing? What did you do during that time you were together? Well, you know. They crossed paths with someone, they did, they, and they said, we were taught and we were trained. What is the great and beautiful thing about campus ministry? A lot of them train them how to evangelize and reach their friends and make disciples. And then they would say, so-and-so discipled me. Why are you making disciples? Well, because so-and-so discipled me. You see that? So let me, let me give you some conclusions here now that your brain hurts. And I hope this has kind of whet your appetite a bit. That's the idea. Excited about reaching millennials, discipling millennials, and now we're going to get practical in just a second. Let me give you some conclusions here. What did that generation, this generation, my generation, what has it taught us about bringing up a generation of disciple makers? Here's what I think. Disciple-making parents raise disciple-making kids. From a social science standpoint, remember, Christian families are producing these nebulous kind of walk-away-from-the-faith situations but disciple-making parents, as a rule, raise disciple-making kids. This is not, let me nuance this, this is not a guarantee. This is not one of, we're not in charge. We don't micromanage our kids. We, we can't will it that they, they, they are their own souls. We don't have a guarantee in this. But as a general rule, when they see them, see your parents making disciples, that's influential in them. Disciple-making youth leaders influence disciple-making young people. And here's, here's, a, here's a big one from my research some of our best disciple makers didn't have a great home or church. 
Well, I just remember that. What does that mean for us? Some of our best disciple makers were intersected in life at a time just like this. They met with a disciple maker, and now they're our best disciple makers. What does that mean for us? There's hope. There's absolutely hope. Yet they're, they're confused, they're hollow, and yet God's using people. God's going to use the home in this resurgence of family discipleship. God's going to use the church as we refine our strategies. And God's going to use people outside of that to raise up disciple makers. Here's my conclusion. What can we say then? What can we say about discipling millennials? Unaffiliated millennials often have spiritual interests but a hollow soul. It's just walking back. We've already covered all this, sort of a summary here. Most millennials that are in the church were never discipled deeply. We recognize that. If they're there and they're plugged into our church, it's not assumed they've gone deep. We need to disciple them deeply. We'll talk about the practicals of that as we go. They're typically disinterested in the institution. We need to know that. They need to be engaged relationally probably. The bridge into their life is probably not going to be an invitation to church. Probably. It's going to be a relational bridge. It's going to be loving them, taking interest in them. And then finally, here's the last one I found. Those college disciplers, they've really struggled to figure out how to make disciples into young adulthood. You know, they're like, of course, I used to, that, that we say, are you making disciples? Are you involved in discipleship? And they go, yeah, that's what I used to do with crew. Hear that a lot. That's what I used to do back in college. We'd go door to door. We had guys, well, you had time, and we had a bunch of single people, right? So one of the things we have to notice is millennials have to figure out how to make disciples after that. With an 8 to 5. With a family. How do they make disciples in the home church and city? I wanted to close with this. I asked my wife um, as we were just having this conversation. I, I was thinking, why, when we look back at all this, why are those who are 14, 15, and 16, and now they're 28 and 30 and 32, and they're strong? They didn't get blown over. How, how did they get there? We were having this conversation. And my wife said, why don't you use yourself as an example? Because she was telling me, she was retelling me my own story. I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot. When I was 16, I was hollow. I was trying to find myself. I was just a shell. I was spiritually uh, interested, but not engaged. And uh, I got duped into a three-on-three basketball tournament (laughs) at a church. Um, and um, I showed up, and I remember, I'll never forget, I brought my non-Christian buddies up there, and we were going to whoop up on those church kids. Well, in that moment, as we were acting a fool and cussing guys out and cheating and trying to win it all, we were acting like non-believers, right? Kenan was there. And he told me later, a couple years later, he, just, he felt sort of the sense, you know, you get the nudge from the Holy Spirit, not an audible thing, a nudge from the Holy Spirit... If that dude would follow Christ, maybe he could make an impact. And so, gosh, 16 years later, I so gratefully didn't just go home and pray for me, which I'm sure he was praying a lot for me. But you know what he did? He got right up close to my life. We hung out together. We played sports together. We played video games together. We became bros. And you know what happened? is He, he filled that, that hollowness. He filled it with the Word of God. My wife's walking me back through this, and she goes, so why do you think you're 32 now? And our, we have four little girls, so, and we're trying to raise our kids in the Lord. And, and, and by God's grace, we are at a place as a family. Like, there's, there's nothing like the satisfaction of saying, I once was shaky and, and movable by the wind. And now, like, come what may in this life, we're going nowhere. You know what I'm talking about? And she said, why is that? And I wrote down these things. I think it's because one person took an honest interest in my life. That's the difference. 16, we know the grace of God is the ultimate difference of why these things happen. One person took an honest interest in my life, instilled in me an understanding of and a love for God's Word. You know the difference between the 16-year-old and the 32-year-old? It absolutely is the Word of God. It absolutely is. It's changed my life. Number three, I told her, I said, I saw the modeling of a self-sacrificing life 
of evangelism, discipleship, and service. I saw it. You know what? It was compelling. Saw it. And then I think this one might be just as important. The last one is Kenan passed me the baton. Didn't just do Bible study. Didn't just watch me grow deep. That's really cool. He came to Christ and now he's getting stronger. He passed me the baton and said, it's your turn. And that was a critical part of my maturity. Here's the great thing about our track. We're talking about millennials, these next five. is I think what we're going to get a chance to do is get like a deeper look into those. It's like... How do, we take an, how do we take an interest in someone else's life? How do we saturate them in the Word of God? Give them a love of God's Word. How do we model around them what it looks like to be self-sacrificing and serving for the benefit of others? And then how do we pass them the baton? But ultimately, that's when I look back on my life, that's what I see. Appreciate you guys hanging with us. Can I say a prayer to close us? And then we'll, we'll be back, I think, after like a 15 or... What? Be back at 4 o'clock. God, thank you for this time, and I thank you for this group and just the the hunger here, the desire uh, to know you more and to be more effective disciple makers. And so would you meet us here by your Holy Spirit and help us to uh, gain some understanding and some wisdom and some clarity so that we might be more effective for your sake. It is all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for hanging with that, guys. So we'll see you in 15 minutes. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from Downline Ministries' track called Discipling Millennials, Engaging the Next Generation of Church Leadership with the Gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.